Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile's Sound Notes. This is sort of a multitasking podcast. We have three different topics. Mike Kottmeyer is here. Mike, thank you for taking time out of your afternoon. Super happy to do it, and I am excited to see where this crazy conversation goes. <laughs> so we have <laughs> three sort of mini topics. Yeah. Um, the first one we're going to talk about, just to give you kind of a, a prep for the schedule, is locus yeah. of blame. Okay. External that, locus of blame. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? Well, I don't want to give it away yet. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, yeah, okay, cool. yeah. Then, then we're also going to talk about Elevate Agile, which is a big okay. deal. Okay. And we're going to talk about another topic. I'm not really sure how to describe, but basically the way I framed it up was I'd like to offer advice to people who are trying to find their voice in their organization. People who okay. don't yet feel like they have the gravity to speak up or the position to, to like take the room. Yeah, that's wanna, that, that's a way better way of describing it than when we were we were talking about it. So you, you, you pulled that out. time to think but, about it. Yeah, ruminate on it. Great job. Right. Yeah, what's really kind of funny is that, you know, Dave and I, we always start these things and we have kind of a notional idea of where we want to go. And, and Dave just had all these like cool hodgepodge of ideas. So I'm like, why don't we just do like a multi-topic thing? So yeah. it'll be fun. All right. Cool. So actually, since we're going for 45 minutes, okay. I'm going to set a timer. Okay, cool. Awesome. Keep us to get, yeah, see how okay. see if we can actually do this. Okay. So cool. the first topic is you said external locus of blame, but yep. for me, it's really when that conversation came up, just locus yeah. of blame in general is what I was thinking. Yeah. But um, uh, do you want to do you want to introduce or do you want me to do it? Yeah. Well, so well, so I'll tell you. I'll give you a little bit of backdrop. Is is you know as leading agile's grown, and you know for anybody who's you know paying attention or not paying attention, you know we're about 150 people or so at this point, and and we're doing a bunch of hiring. And a couple of years ago, <clears throat> we started down this um, path of personality profiling because what we were finding is that is that there's a lot of brilliant agilists that were not like, and I hate to say this way, but just not awesome consultants. <laughs> and we were trying to figure out what was the difference between somebody who was awesome and somebody who kind of showed up and, and, you know, again, right. I mean, like everybody's, you know, again, I use not awesome, like, cause I mean, everybody's work has been, been fairly awesome, but you know, maybe it's not the best consultants, right. Or, you know, they don't handle themselves with really high emotional intelligence or something like that. Right. So there's like this space of things that we're hunting. And so if you ever apply for a job with us, we're going to send you four assessments and, and it's a lot, but it's actually, it actually kind of works. Right. And so the easy ones to talk about, are um, we do like a proxy for IQ that's called CCAT. It basically um, measures like processing speed, how fast you can solve simple problems, things like that. And we do an emotional intelligence one that if you've ever read any of Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence or, you know, probably just casually, you're probably pretty familiar with that. But, you know, typical things like empathy and, you know, um, self-awareness and all those kinds of things, like being able to be in tune with the emotional needs of others. And then there's this one that's actually my favorite called Color Code. It's based upon the same science as the disk. Um, but what was cool about it is the way they um, way they package the results, right? It talks about whether you're um, logical or emotional, controlling or non-controlling. And probably the reason why I like this one the best is because it helped me actually understand my wife. And um, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but... But I would have asked, if you would have asked me like what, what I thought my wife was, I would have said logically non-controlling. Well, my wife's actually emotionally controlling. And that sounds like really bad when you say it that way. But my, but my <laughs> wife- to make needs, sure Kimmy doesn't listen to this. No, she, 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 <laughs> like, it's pretty fair game, right? 
Um, so what, what emotionally controlling means is that she needs everybody to be okay. And she will put a ton of energy into making sure that everybody she cares about in her world is okay. Like she wants you to be safe and she wants you to be, um, listened to and supported and nurtured and all those things. Right. So the logical non-controlling was very much like, um, you know, she, she didn't have to be right per se, right. In that regard, it's, or, or like it manifests in like rule following behavior and certain things like that, where I'm like the exact opposite. I'm logically controlling, emotionally non-controlling. And so anyway, so neither here nor there, right. It was uh, super insightful, incredibly predictive of behavior. Fascinating. But the one that I'm, I'm tracking towards is this um, tool from a company. Um, I think they're based in Dallas, Texas now called People Best, um, run by a guy named Jim Hunter. And, uh, and it's, a, it's an assessment tool that, um, you know, I, I don't want to go like super deep into it, but it basically, um, it like, again, just incredibly predictive of human behavior, but it's a fairly complex and robust tool. And so how we use it is um, we, we, when people assess, right? We compare them against other people that we've worked with or that we've interviewed or whatever. And so we have a bunch of profiling patterns. And so we kind of look to see um, how you profile against people that have been successful or not successful with us in the past. And we use that um, uh, not so much as like a hiring decision, but we use it as a way of driving conversation in the interview. Can I ask a question about this? Yeah, sure, please. Is yeah. that, com- I've never heard of one of these where you were compared against the other people in like a specific community, like like a company. It's always like you against everyone in the universe. And that to me is what's so interesting about this is yeah. it's not saying you against everybody, but Leading Agile is an unusual place. Yeah. And it takes well, a certain kind of person to succeed here. Well, they, they, well, so you're exactly right. Right. So, so they actually have all that data. Like, so if I was hiring call center people, right, they right. have tons of industry data on call center people, or, or if you're going to be a manager, or if you're going to be a generic consultant, or you're going to be a salesperson or whatever, um, then, then, you know, they absolutely have that data, but, but there was nothing that was like a match for, an agile consultant coach kind of person. It's a really right. different thing, right? And so one of the one of the kind of the cool success stories, and it's anecdotal, but it, it's really neat. So like, you know, I mean, as you know, Dave, we have a phenomenal operations team. Yep. Um, a group of people that are just super high attention to detail, incredibly high follow through, um, you know, literally just wired to where it kind of makes them like, like my admin who's on that team, like she'll, she'll say things to me like, yeah, like um, next time your global entry needs to be um, updated in like four years, I'll make sure that we do it six months in advance. And I'm like four years out, six months in advance, but it will happen. Like I don't even worry about it. Right. So it's like that level of, you know, just again, tension detail. They take care of stuff instead of being in the way of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, again, like it's, it's like, it's like just, it's kind of intangible. So anyway, kind of long story short, um, uh, we were looking for uh, events person on our marketing team, but marketing people can sometimes, sometimes tend to be more um, unstructured. <clears throat> At least that's my experience. And so what we wanted was a very highly structured marketing person. And so we looked for candidates that fit our ops profile, but had marketing background. And it's crazy. Like we've done some things and it, and, it, and it's like, we've hired some people that were that maybe we wouldn't have hired, but because they profiled so strongly, we took a chance and they've just shown up phenomenally, right? Wow. It's a little bit more of a black art on the consulting side. 
And so, so we're hunting, we're hunting for attributes. We're hunting for secret sauce kinds of things. And so one of the things that it's like money ball a a little bit, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, so one of the, one of the first things that we hunted is we, is cause I don't want to do any more assessments. So we said, okay, so we have a, I know, I don't know if anybody, again, probably nobody hits our, our guides webpage, but we have a lady named Kelly Lingerfeld on our team who is a, um, she's a neuropsychologist um, and she does a lot of executive coaching and performance coaching for us um, uh, when, you know, people problem and you can get, you can go to her personal problems, things like that. But um, she's actually, she actually came out of the people best organization and works for us now. And, um, and so one of the things that she and, and Jim helped us do was to create a, a growth mindset, fixed mindset index. And, and it was based on Carol Dweck's work. And so they basically took that book and all of the attributes in the book and basically built a model around um, growth mindset, fixed mindset, and where you fall on a hundred point scale. And, and it's just a, just another data point, right? And so if you show up incredibly fixed mindset based upon this, um, this assessment, then we can start asking questions um, to see if that's relevant to the job that you're taking. Right. Um, If you're incredibly growth mindset, right. That's, it's just good to know. So one of the things that work, this is a super long way of explaining this, right. (laughs) But so maybe we'll spend 45 minutes on one topic. It always kind of, I was looking at that. Like, we're not going to, so, so, or we'll just do a really long podcast. Well, it's a growth mindset to the topic. Absolutely. Right. (laughs) So, so one of the things we're talking about is this idea of internal locus of blame versus external locus of blame. And, and, and what it really kind of comes down to, is probably there actually more I'm thinking about as I'm talking about, we might find it has some parallels to the growth versus fixed mindset, but I think it absolutely does. Yeah. And that was the first thing I picked up. Well, it'll be fascinating. So we'll, we'll build the model and we'll do the data and we'll see how, we'll see how, how much they compare. But the idea of having like, um, uh, an external locus of blame is when something bad happens to you. Do you perceive that as being from a factor that was beyond your control? Or um, is it something that you could have exerted power over? So like if somebody's interviewing for, for us, and, and we'll ask this question now, a lot of times we'll say, well, tell me about um, a, an example of a transformation that you've been involved with that was really successful. Or tell me an example of a transformation that was not successful. That's actually the more interesting question. And then you ask why. And, and so, so people will start to explore and, and you can kind of like, well, it was because of my boss or it's because of my manager is because of the organization is because of the culture is because of this, because of that. And then you can ask a question like, well, so like if you were King and you could have changed anything, like what would you have done differently? Right. And, and, and given the nature of the answer, you could start to start to kind of untangle if people feel powerful to have impact over their world or whether they um, don't feel powerful to have yeah. impact over their world. Does that make sense? It does. And it raised a whole new question for me about this. So first, I just want to, just to give a shout out to the other interviews. I've done an interview with Kelly, which mm-hmm. I'll link to. Um, and also um, I'm in the process of doing interviews with Mary Kaufman about oh, cool. growth first fixed mindset. So we've yeah, done, cool. posted yeah. two of them already. Um, 
you in in the conversation that that I listened to that where you were talking about this, you mm-hmm. talked about having an internal locus of blame where when things go wrong, your first place to look is internally. Yeah. Like, what did yeah. I do? Yeah. And I'm wondering. I would like to talk about that, but but I also would like to talk about whether your attribution of success is internal or external. Because I almost feel like if you have an internal locus of blame, you probably have an external locus of success. Well, okay, let's un- let's unpack it a little bit, right? So the first part of your question um, about internal locus of blame, I actually think about it. Um, I actually don't tend to think about is an internal locus of blame as much as I tend to think about it through, I guess, like Christopher Avery's lens around personal responsibility. Yeah, you know, the catch soon. <clears throat> And, you know, so there's some provocative um, kinds of examples. So I'm going to try to come up with a a less provocative example. Like if I'm, if I'm toting around Atlanta at two in the morning in kind of a sketch neighborhood and I get robbed, right? Is it, is that my fault or is that the robber's fault? And obviously nobody should. Or is it society's fault? Yeah. Obviously. (laughs) Like anybody should be able to walk around anywhere and not be attacked hundred percent. Right. That's inarguable, but, but like blaming the, the world or even the perpetrator, it makes me powerless in the scenario. Right. So, so like what I choose to do, and it's a choice, I believe is I tend to take responsibility for anything that happens to me. And I go, what could I have done not to have myself in that situation? Um, goes to like client work, right? So if we have a if we have a client wrap up earlier than I would like, you know, one way um, you know that you could look at is well, the client didn't have budget, or they were happy with their results and they didn't want to do anything else or whatever. Like, okay, cool, right? That might all very well be true, but if every time a account ends. It's because of budget problems. Well, like that's a difficult way to sustain a business. So, so even if the budget problem is true, like I always think about it from the standpoint of what could we have done to add more value to make that spend on us more obvious right. to do. Right. And and I also get like the truths in the middle, right? Just like my getting attacked in Atlanta or you know, the budget thing, it's like. It's like, it's true simultaneously that somebody can have a budget problem and we still could have done more to de- deliver value. But, but if you look at it as a budget problem, that's more external locus of blame. Something beyond my control caused this engagement to wrap up. Right. True, right? It's probably true. But that, but that viewpoint doesn't serve me, right? Because if it's just a budget problem I have no control over, then I'm powerless to influence my world. And, but if I, if I look at every problem is what could I have done to add more value or what could I have done to keep myself safe? Or what could I have done to avoid the car accident when I got T-boned in the intersection? Or like, again, examples are endless, right? Right. Because if it's, if it's the other person's fault, then I'm a victim. If, if it's, if, if I take responsibility, then, then I, I at least have um, the possibility of being powerful in the conversation. And, and the reason why that matters, and, and I think this would matter for 
internal change agents, and it probably dovetails with some of the conversation you want to have on the backside of this, is, is when you it, when you view things as somebody else's problem and the problem and their behavior exists outside of you, then like, how do you influence change in an organization? It's like, what you have to constantly be thinking about is um, I'm powerful. I have the ability to influence change. And if I haven't been able to influence the change, no matter how um, difficult the people around me are, how immovable the people around me are, like I, I have to look at it through the lens of what could I have done differently to help them see. Yeah. Right. Have to. Right. And so, and so as, as an internal person, Right. I, I know it's tough, right? Because, you know, you, you might get, you, you might build a bad relationship and you've got to live in that company for a long time. And it's really difficult to push people. And, and so it's easy to be in this, like, well, I'm just going to locally optimize. I'm just going to do what I have control over. And maybe that's the best thing to do. But as a consultant, um, you have to be able to approach the, um, you have to be able to approach the problem through the lens of everything is my responsibility, everything. Because it's our job, this client has hired us to influence their organization to move in this direction. Yeah. And are there difficult people and difficult customers and people who don't want to change and people are dug in and want to get you fired and all that stuff? 100%, right? That's 100% true. <laughs> so maybe the locus of blame is legitimately there. I get it, right? But, but if that's how I view the world, and I view myself powerless relative to that problem, well, then, then I, I will be less effective. So like everything in the leading agile framework is about saying, look, it is up to us as leading agile um, to be good stewards of the resources that our clients have given us and to continuously innovate our models to where we can overcome um, structural resistance, resistance organizations, yeah. right? Because like, I'm telling you, none of, none of the companies that hire us are, are super easy to transform, right? That's all hard. Right. And, you know, imagine big companies. I mean, they're, they're full of people that have been doing things the way they've been doing them forever and they don't want to change. Right. And if, and if, if a prerequisite for success is that everybody in the company is lined up and ready to do exactly what you tell them, it right, that would be happen. great, but it's like, but, but it, it it it's just not reality. Yeah, can right? I can I can I? I <clears> want to <throat> yeah. just try to tie this together for some folks yeah. who maybe aren't working as transformation consultants. So, yeah. I you know all the things that Mike has just said. When I think about it, I also think about all the people who live as victims in companies. They're making me do this. I can't change. No one will listen. Yeah. And it does tie for me. It ties directly back to the growth mindset and also to Christopher's work. Yeah. Um, but. I think there is a place where you make a choice. I, I'm going to be the victim or I'm not going to be the victim. It's yeah. easier to be the victim in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, one of, the things I, one of the things I told my son, who's um, he's working on a, a PhD in physical therapy right now. And so he's a pretty smart kid. And um, one of the things I told him when he was like 12, <clears throat> is I said, the way that you get to make your own rules in a company is to be so good at what you do that people just give you permission to do whatever you need to do, right? So I've always taken it the way I've, I've expanded my agency and influence in the companies I've worked for prior to starting Leading Agile 
And, and again, I've, I've been successful at it and I've been less successful at it, but it's like to be, to align myself with my leader and my leader's objectives and to, and to just relentlessly pursue excellence and helping them solve that problem. And because I've in most cases been so solid in my ability to do that based upon, I think my skills and the way I view the world and the way I take ownership and all these things, I've been generally given fairly carte blanche to do whatever I needed to do to do my job. Like I seldomly have in my career have ever found myself micromanaged. But were you, was there a time, this is kind of like edging into that third topic. Yeah. Was there a time when you didn't have that agency? Well, the one thing that always comes to mind, this was, this was fascinating. And then we should probably move topics if you actually want to have a shot at talking about anything else this, this hour, or we can just, or we can just stick on no, this. No, I, I think we can, we can kind of seal this one up in a few minutes. I just okay, want to hear what cool. you have to say about this. Well, so there was a, there was a, a job that I had. Um, I won't name the name. Um, it was probably four jobs ago, something. I was probably like in my mid early mid thirties or something like that. And um Big reorg, new leadership team came in. Um, a lot of the leaders that I was really tight with had gotten um, let go. And the and then the this this lady that came in basically didn't think a whole lot of me um, and basically put me on like I was running like most of the strategic projects and I say most, but a lot of strategic projects in the organization. And she basically put me on these like really, really small projects. I had like literally almost nothing to do. And, um, and I'm like, okay, well, this is sounds like, let's give Mike time to work on his secret, secret evil plan. Well, well, so, so what I basically did is there was another guy in the organization had too much work to do. And so I could have sat there and played the victim and said, you know, this is unfair. You know, I'm being unfairly judged. I'm being like, whatever. Right. But I went to the guy with too much work and I said, can I help you? Like, what can I do? What can I take off your plate? And he gave me like the third highest project in the company to help him with. And the product person like pulls us in the VP's office and she's like, she's like, um, looks at the one guy, guys, I can't, I don't know who's in charge. Is this Mike in charge or is this Brian in charge? And Brian looks at it and goes, I don't have capacity to do all these things. Mike volunteered. And, and so like literally the VP looks at me who was gave me nothing to do and goes, well, okay, Mike, I guess you have it. <laughs> right. And, and like, literally I could have played victim in that situation, yeah. but I was like super proactive went and got myself involved in something, became a critical player and, and, and can't leave, probably delayed getting laid off by six months. But, but so it ended up in the same boat, but like, but like I did the right thing, right? I leaned yeah. in the situation instead you of- turned into, it into a learning opportunity and advantage. Yeah. And sometimes things will legitimately happen to you that are beyond your control. But, but I think having that idea that internal locus of blame or that uh, that ability to take personal responsibility for your stuff is like I'm not going to be a victim of my environment and and you know so if I got in a car accident that wasn't my fault like I think like how could I have been a better defensive driver like how could how could I have created the conditions to avoid that yeah. how could I have been in a different situation so I didn't get robbed how could I be in a different situation so I don't get laid off or something like that and and I just think if if you view the world that way, um, you 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 will inevitably be in a more powerful in control situation, which is very red, isn't it? 
Well, yeah, it's probably has a lot to do with like all my other personality. <laughs> but so it was okay. So great, great, great closing comment, right? Which is why we're hunting this in the personality profiles. Yeah. So I don't think it's just being red on this color code thing. I don't think it's going to come down to a single attribute. I think there's going to be a, a family of things that kind of come together. Um, yeah, I don't know. And so also, not, if, you, if you're, if you're thinking about applying to leading edge, not everybody here, speaking on behalf of the blue community, yeah. not everybody here is red. Yeah, <laughs> not everybody here is red. But I will tell you, there's certain roles where, like, if you don't have, if you, if you, if you don't demonstrate some control tendencies, yeah, um, you know, it'd be very difficult because a big part of what we're trying to do is we're leading people down a path. And, and sometimes there's room to, you know, again, right. You have to dial it in. That's why emotional intelligence, intellectual intelligence, all these different dispositions is we're looking for people that can like that, that are, that are effective, but can flex too. Right. So, I mean, you can't just be anchored in your one thing. So, yeah. All right. So before we switch one last thing, I just, I want to point this out. You just kind of, the spark just went off. Okay. People are trying to move down the path of becoming like one of the, you know, a consultant who has the gravitas, mm-hmm. but also the agile experience. I think finding comfort in playing around with that. Um, I am not somebody, I'm not red. I can do that if I have to do it, Yeah. but it's not like my go-to. It's not yeah. a place I like, yeah. but I'm, I can step into it. And I think it's like playing music in different styles. If If you're trying to, grow into this kind of a role, maybe that's something you can start to work on in a smaller scale and then you can develop those abilities and then come work at Leading Agile. Yeah. A lot of times the, um, like, you know, as, as high red as I am, secondary yellow, right? Logical control, emotional non-control. Um, as high as I am on that spectrum, in short bursts, I can be highly empathetic. I can, I can pay attention to feelings. I can, you know, I don't overuse empathize, but I can empathize. I can be compassionate in that regard. Um, but, but it drains me, right? Just as much as probably standing in the front of the room, trying to get people lined <laughs> yep. up to do whatever they need to do. Exhaust Wears you, me out. Yep. Right. Like I have limited capacity for listening to people's emotional problems, but but, you know, I'm probably sharing too much about myself, but, but yeah. Right. So, so again, right. I mean, that's the thing with all this personality stuff. It's like, like, and, and, and we're very aware of this in leading agile. It's like, people don't fit in boxes and people can be lots of things, but, but a lot of times if you're asking somebody to hold their breath for more than a minute, right. You just know they're not gonna be able to do it indefinitely. Right. And can people change? Sure. But they have to have like a really strong desire to change and evolve and to learn new things or to use your analogy to practice a different musical style that they're not as comfortable with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, it's not a, it's not just like, and again, right? it's like we very seldomly eliminate people from the interview process based solely on personality profile. Um, but we'll use it to drive questioning in the interview and to see, you know, where people land. And so one of the things we're hunting, and again, I don't know where to land is this idea of is, do you accept responsibility or do you have an external locus of blame? Because, because very difficult to be a great consultant if it's always the customer's fault that something didn't go right. Yeah. You know? Cool. Even when it is, it's just like, that's just not a, that's just not a powerful disposition well, to approach the problem from. Even when it is, you can still learn and get better from it. Yeah, you have to. You have yeah. to figure out. You have to figure out how to how to do something differently the next time because because you know people that don't want to change are all over the place. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. okay. Cool. Segway. Cool. Elevate Segway. Agile. 
Okay, let's talk Coming about up, it. The delayed yep. celebration slash event um, was held back for a year because of the pandemic. Yeah. Have it in September. You want to tell them what's yeah, coming up? Yeah, so talk about it, right? So, but I think we shouldn't just talk about the event. We should talk about um, like what the message of the event is. So I'm going to try to go into that too. Yeah. So just tactically, we're um, on September 28th and 29th, we're hosting um, a fairly significant event. So on the 28th, we're having our 10-year um, uh, celebration, right? So we turned 10 last year, August 1st last year. And obviously got delayed because of the pandemic. I'm kind of holding our breath on this one. I think it's going to go, but, um, you know, encourage people to be vaccinated, wear masks if you need to. Um, uh, but anyway, so we're, we're going to host an event um, the evening of the 28th. And we have Zach Brown Band, one of my favorite bands from Atlanta, Georgia, Collective Soul, my all-time favorite band from Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we've hired them, rented out Coca-Cola Roxy um, in uh, Truist um, Park right near the baseball stadium in Atlanta. And we're going to throw a really big party and it's going to be, you know, kind of open bar, um, great music, a lot of fun. The next morning, I strongly encourage people not to take advantage of the open bar and to be coherent (laughs) for the Elevate Agile conference, which we're doing in in parallel with this. And um, so we have a, we have probably, I'm going to keynote opening, closing keynote. We have five leading agile speakers, two client speakers, but what we're what we're focusing on, what what Elevate Agile is about, and I give props to my brother Brian who um, came up with the name Elevate Agile. Um, but what we're basically doing, right? So the idea behind this is is we think Agile is at risk, and, and probably already is in a lot of circles of, of being coming commoditized. And it's just this thing that the teams do. It's the you know it's daily standups, it's reviews, it's retrospectives, whatever. Um, I still go back to that Ken Schwaber quote that said something like 80% of the people doing Scrum aren't going to get the value out of it. Well, a big, a big reason is because as you go into these really large organizations, um, it, it's like how you form teams. It's like where backlogs come from, how you get to working test of software at the end of the sprint, um, how you deal with governance, how you deal with compliance, how you deal with enterprise architecture, how you deal with budgeting and funding, how you deal with all these things like directly impacts your ability um, to really, to really adopt agile fully. And so, and so if you, if you're just a small team and you're not connected to anything else in the organization, I do scrum all day long and that that's awesome. But it's like, but if you're part of a team working on a mainframe system and you have, you know, a release management cycle that takes two months to get through and you have annual budgets and funding and all, like, I mean, how agile can you, can you really be? Right. So a big part of what we've been working on, and, and I need to write a paper on this or something because it's, it's relatively new thinking. It's stuff we've been doing for a couple of years, but we, we kind of crystallized it is, um, you know, we, we, anybody who's familiar with our stuff knows that we have this idea of expeditions moving to base camps we kind of coined this phrase around organizations moving to summits and we've defined five summits that kind of operate in parallel with um, the five base camps. And the general idea is, is that in order to get the organization to move, you're often moving expeditions to base camps in a way that like breaks the rest of the organization usually is operating with exceptions. It's operating with funding exceptions. It's operating with audit compliance control exceptions, it's operating often with exceptions to enterprise architecture, um, you know, different strategy things, right? And so what the what we're talking about is, is once you get 
the organization to a certain set of critical mass and, and the more agile ways of working become the norm, then what do you do with the rest of the organization, right? How do you give the rest of an organization a path forward so that it can begin to exploit this new delivery capability that you've got on the IT side? Okay. Okay. So it's really, um, so you can call it business agility, you can call it digital transformation, you can call it a lot of different things, but, you know, true to form to kind of the leading agile way, right? It gets almost into the, you know, the personal responsibility internal locus of blame stuff. Yeah. It's like our job isn't to teach companies how to do agile. Our job isn't to install Scrum. Our job is to help organizations truly get the business benefit from adopting these methodologies. And if you don't have a well-articulated story for um, how do you go about enlisting the rest of the functions in the enterprise to actually support agility rather than work against agility, then then it's a it's like you get some, a lot of local benefit, but you don't get a lot of organizational benefit. So, so can I check with yeah. you on something about this? Yeah, I just want to make yeah. sure I'm I'm clear on yeah. it. So it sounds to me like you're not saying the entire organization necessarily has to switch over to Scrum or Kanban or some scaling option or something like that, but there will be an element that is operating in an agile manner because it gives you the ability to respond and all that quickly. And the rest of the organization will have to find a new way that supports that capability. Like you've got a new gear and the rest of it doesn't have to work the same way, but has to enable that gear. Well, well, so, okay. So let me see if I can unpack what you're asking a little bit. So, so part of the challenge that you have is that a lot of times when this is going to be overly simplistic, but it'll, I'll use this for the sake of example, right? So what does it mean for an executive to be agile? Does it mean that they meet with their executive team and plan their backlog um, using Scrum? Like, no. Like, I mean, it could mean that, but would that matter? Does it matter that the executives are using daily stand-up meetings or sprint planning or reviews and retrospectives to manage their collective work? Not if we're focused on outcomes, it doesn't. Well, yeah, it just doesn't matter, right? Right. So, so what does it mean? What does it mean for an executive to be agile? And again, I'm using a, a very narrow example. But are they willing to um, do continuous funding to persistent organizations? Okay. Are they are they willing to do quarterly cycle planning rather than annual cycle planning so that they can inspect and adapt on quarterly boundaries? Yeah. Right. That those are the kinds of behaviors you want. Um, a lot of times, you know, the waterfall type processes are instantiated in um, kind of audit compliance and governance and things like that. So, so if you want to change budgeting and you want to empower agile teams, then you might have to change how your audit functions work, mm-hmm. how you govern enterprise architecture, right? Right? How you deploy technology? Like, I mean, just tons. Like, yeah, there's just a whole like um, cloud of things. Do you that, think that, that that's going to mean we're going to end up with new models for things like accounting? I mean, as they progress. In supporting Agile. Yeah. So so I'm not like I'm not like the deep expert on this. I mean, that's been one of the things that is leading Agile's gotten bigger. Um, you know, we have consultants um in our product practice that really f- focus on financial compliance, financial controls, things like that. And yeah. so so I don't want to hypothesize too deeply on the specifics of where this goes. 
Okay. But but the reality is, is that we know that when we spin up a scrum team or a safe release train or something, the vast majority of times that that bit of the organization is operating incongruently with the financial and other controls that the organization has in place. Right. So with the point that these safe teams, um, scrum teams, what have you, are operating, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, they're operating yeah. with true agility, but everything else in the organization is working against that agility and making it hard. There's a translation there. Yeah. Right. And that's like legit for a minute because, because as agile is new and it's just getting rolled out, the preponderance of the organization is still operating in the old way. But what happens once the, the system of delivery, the agile system of delivery is reliable and trustworthy and predictable, and it can be counted on to deliver against the goals of the organization, Right. then it's incumbent upon the organization to recognize that and to change the way it works to exploit this new, more advanced yeah. capability it's developed. I think it's and very exciting though, because it, it, there's awesome. a whole new there. I, I mean, we use accounting as an example, but every part of the organization, it's like a door is opened and now there's space for new practices and new tools and new ways, just like we've had in IT. Yeah. So, so we have a, so we have a, um, a, a marquee, um, very, very large client, tens of thousands of people. We've been working with them for about four years, fortune 100 top quarter of the fortune 100. Um, that is that we transformed enough of the organization where that became the next constraint. And so they're partnering with us, leaned in. And, and what's cool about it is not only are we in, in the process of inventing the language, but inventing the methodology, inventing the outcomes-based plans, inventing the consulting models, inventing the, the, the backlogs, right? All that stuff of things that need to be changed. Because what you can say is when your organization hits this set of characteristics, here's your next class of problems to go solve. Yeah. And it and it just, and it scripts it out and it roadmaps it out and it makes it really, really clear what has to happen and when it has to happen and why it has to happen and all those things. And that's what we found with like the core of transformation. It's like so much of transformation is like train everybody on Scrum and all the goodness emerges and, or let's train everybody on agile mindset and all the goodness emerges, right? We've gotten a lot of traction by like, by creating ways of systematically helping organizations form teams and create clear backlogs and get to the place where they can do working tests and software. So all the agile goodness can happen within that. Right. Now what we've got to do is create safety within the broader enterprise to where they can let go of the way they've been governing the organization. And it's not that governance goes away. It's just that it changes, changes yeah. to accommodate this new delivery capability that you've invested in. Right? It's fairly powerful. So getting back to the Elevate Agile story, one of the things that we're really trying to do is like, I mean, like I've, I've been on record for a long time saying, I don't think Agile is going anywhere. Like the idea of delivering in small cross-functional teams and working off prioritized backlogs, working tested increments of software, every sprint, even some of the scaled stuff, like it's not going away. It's not, right? We might call it something else. We might do something slightly different. Um, but it's not going away, right? So what we have to figure out how to do is, and it's the idea behind the word elevate, like we have to elevate the conversation and, and talk about this as something bigger than the team level stuff. More systematic. It's more systematic, right? 
And so is it still, is, is kind of the focus of the conference probably still largely software organizations? Um, yeah, I think for the most part, but I think a lot of what we're talking about is like generally applicable. I mean, we're doing a lot of stuff in healthcare and pharmaceuticals and things like that. And um, yeah, I just, I just see application for this in, in just a lot of different areas. And so, so one of the interesting thing is like, I, I think there's still a whole lot of skittishness um, society-wise over pandemic Delta variant, things like that. And so one of the things that um, Tim, our chief marketing officer, is working on is we probably have a probably have 20 or 30 people signed up for the in-person event. It'd be nice if we got 50 or 60 people in the room for that, but we're gonna do a we're gonna do a virtual version of it as well and and live stream all the talks. Cool. So um, so we're gonna make it um because I know there's a lot of companies out there that can't um can't fly, can't travel right now. They're yeah. not approving any of that. So so not only will we have a we'll have an in-person contingent. We will have um, we will have a um, like a day of live event that that's going to happen, and then obviously you know parts of it will be recorded and you know put out on our different channels and things like that. So there'll be a lot of ways to get involved in this conversation with us. Cool. So yeah. and I'm going to make sure we have links to where people can sign up for the event. That would be awesome. And on behalf of the entire universe, congratulations on. 11 years. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, right? So one of our, one of our, our people suggested it's like, it's like the uh, spinal tap thing. Yeah, this, that's like, what I was just saying. It goes to 11. It's like the 10 year celebration that goes to 11, right? So yeah. we have to get some t-shirts made or something like that. So some. yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It was a real bummer, right? When we couldn't, we couldn't have, we could have actually had it last year, just that the optics would have been terrible, no vaccines or whatever. And we would have yeah. had really limited attendance. And, and so, you know, so we're in Georgia. So the, the event will be um, pretty wide open. Um, it should be full capacity. Again, strongly encourage people to show up vaccinated or with a COVID test or with a mask or something like that, be responsible. Um, and we're going to host the event responsibly, but uh but yeah, it's kind of cool. It's kind of exciting that that's coming up. It's a big I'm deal. excited. It'll be, yeah. it'll be fun. Yeah. All right. Cool. Last, last topic. topic. Okay. Yeah, let's stop it. So um, this is something that comes up in class a lot or with okay. the students and other people that I kind of mentor and coach too, but people that are at a stage in their career where they don't, they haven't found a voice of their own yeah. and they, they are in an organization um, working usually at team level, or maybe they're kind of just moving into management and they're, they don't, I don't want to say afraid, they don't have the mechanism yet built in to go in and take the room or to stand up in front of people and like lead the conversation. And it's hard to, I, I never really know what to say to them. I mean, I know how I worked through that problem, but mm-hmm. um, I thought it would be really interesting to ask you because if I was thinking about it this morning, like Mike's probably, ne- maybe Mike was like four, he was probably <laughs> nervous. And then he was like, screw it, I'm taking over. But yeah. there must have been a point in time in which you weren't sure, like when you the first time you got up to do a presentation at a conference or something like that, where you were just, I'm, I'm hoping that there was a time when you were just like freaking out, totally nervous and scared. And I'm curious if that ever happened. If it did, what did you do to work through it? Well, so I'm going to, I'll share it on a couple of different levels. I'll probably go back one step too far. The last times I can legit remember being nervous talking to people um, was probably like in middle school, like anything I had to do on camera, anything I had to do in front of a class or whatever. um, Those are the, those are the times that I remember being nervous. Okay. What I, what I think that I learned as I got older is that, is that 
when I have a very well thought out point of view, I'm pretty fearless sharing that point of view. Okay. When I believe that I'm right. Okay. Like if I'm, if I'm delivering, like, let me take that back. So, so I did um, probably in my mid thirties, mid thirties, I did a little bit of Toastmasters. You did. And yeah, a little bit. Wow. Okay. And, and, and what I found is that speaking extemporaneously, when I'm sitting here trying not to use ums and uhs and rights and all that's like (laughs) all the, all the things that they teach you how to do. And I'm speaking on things that, that I'm not an expert on. Right. Like that makes, that makes me nervous. Okay. But being in, but being in space with people where I'm confident in my point of view, and I know that I can articulate my point of view very well. Yeah. Then for that, I'm, I'm confident in that regard. Are you worried about being challenged by people? Like them questioning you? Well, so 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 probably the evolution of some of that is is where I'm at today. Like I was I've been on was on two one two prospective client calls. They weren't quite sales calls, but they were like prospective client calls. Where and generally when I'm on a call like that, I'll get on the phone with some CIO or vice president or whatever, and I'll ask them some questions. And then like I've gotten to where like this topic area. Like I, you've, you've, you've seen me do it, right? You've been on one or two of these with me and I'll ask a bunch of questions and then I will devise where I want to like step into the story, how I want to tell the story. And I will dynamically create content or create a narrative based upon content that I already got and, and weave a story that resonates with that person. And I do it fearlessly. And I would just like to say, for those of you who haven't witnessed it, it is a beautiful thing to watch. <laughs> it's like art. Well, well, what's what's funny, right, is like all people sometimes say, hey, Mike, can I be on a sales call with you? I'd love to hear what you have to say. And what I'll tell them is like, if you've heard my my talk on, you know, why Agile fails or the Executive's Guide to Agile or something like that, like I don't ever say anything other than those things. Right? It's, it's all the same stuff because the physics of this doesn't change. What 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 I what I do is I as I listen to how the person on the phone understands it, what their concerns are, and what I do is very actively tailor the story to address their specific concerns. Right. So it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of dynamic storytelling, but the elements of the story are the same all the time. But I think that's the difference, right? That's the art of it. So, so where did I develop the ability to do that? Right. So if you look at like, I think the first time I spoke at an agile conference was in 2007. And then up until this particular year, I've spoken to everyone since. And, and what I would find is that, is that in the early days, I would prepare and plan decks, right. And I would put basically everything that needed to be said in the deck. And then it was like, as, as I evolved, then I started going off script more frequently and telling stories and connecting dots and things. So I still had the backup of the deck, but I was getting progressively more comfortable weaving narrative right. around it. Right. 
And then it got to the point where I started building decks that were very thin with almost no words, just pictures, because I, I knew I'd gotten built enough confidence in what I was going to say. And now I would much rather stand in front of, a, like, I mean, I would stand in a, I've done sales presentations, executive presentations and different things with literally just a whiteboard and a pen and just like create a custom story for people um, yeah. because I'm good at it. Right. So I've been doing it for 15 years or something, but, you know, okay. So wind back one step from that. So I think a lot of it has to do like one of the things that, that like, I wonder how, like one of the, the beauty, like back when I was back, when I was starting off in my IT career, I was 19, I was a co-op for IBM and it was like DOS 386 machines at the time. And I might even be getting that wrong. Like the things that I learned back there, even the degree in computer science, the things I learned about kind of how computers worked, right? So you build these mental models up over time. And then, so when you get into more advanced things, right, there's this whole underlying substrate of understanding that, that you don't fully appreciate you have. And one of the things that I think is cool is because I grew up in project management and I grew up in a lot of companies that were very dysfunctional organizationally and had all this experience at version one. Like I just deeply understand the problem. I was literally talking to this lady today and like everything out of my mouth, she's like, that's exactly what we're experiencing. That's exactly what we're experiencing. That's exactly what we're experiencing. Because, because most people are experiencing the same kinds of problems for the same reasons. And when the vast majority of people are experiencing the same problems for the same reasons, the solution patterns tend to be pretty universal. Right. Um, how you implement the solutions tend to be pretty universal. Now, what changes is the specifics of the personalities and the players and the different, you know, you know, organizational, you know, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of specifics, right? But the right. patterns are all the same. And so because I have such deep empathy and understanding of organizations and I have such confidence in the patterns, then like it's, it's so easy to walk in and just speak truth to people. And, you know, my sister one time asked me, she goes, how do you walk into any room in any company in any industry or whatever, and just know for a fact that what you say is going to be the right thing to say. And I'm like, well, I'm like, I've like, I've been in enough organizations where I, I, I believe, I just deeply believe in my soul that these patterns are universal. And I'm willing to sit in front of a room and go, teams, backlogs, working tests of software, structure, governance, and metrics, dependencies are the root of all evil, like all these little things that I say all the time, right? And you just sit in it, right? And I know I'm right. And when you know you're right, you're fearless. And if you're, if, if some, if people don't believe me, like I was, I was talking with somebody yesterday. And they're like, well, I just don't think that we have the problem that you guys solve. And, and if we do, we think we can fix it ourselves. I'm like, okay, like, cool. Right. I mean, <laughs> talk to you in a couple like, of years. <laughs> yeah. Give me a call. Give me a call when you struggled for another couple of years and yeah. we can help you out then. Right. Yeah. That happens all the time. It's, it's fine. Right. It doesn't hurt my feelings. So, so I'm like, I'm, I'm confident enough in what I do that the, that like the threat of being wrong, it's kind of like, you know, like whatever, right? If you don't agree with me, you don't agree with me. It doesn't mean I'm wrong. Well, you just you said know? something that, that I don't know, I think kind of maybe goes back to the first part of this conversation. It doesn't hurt your feelings. And I think people, a lot of people, myself, I would count among them, have been nervous about staking a position or getting up in front of people because we're, we're uh, 
afraid of failure. We're afraid of, of looking like we don't know what we're doing. We're afraid of somebody saying that no, that's a load of crap because it will hurt our feelings. Cause it's like a personal thing, but for you, because of the level of confidence, well, no, I <laughs> just you, but the level of confidence, I think the preparation and the <clears throat> level of confidence. Well, like so, well so, okay. So that's a couple. So let's, let's unpack that for a minute. So, yeah, yeah. so sitting on my side of the table, right. As a consultant, right. As um, a speaker in this space and somebody with an opinion, whatever, like I have a couple things going for me is I am, I, I, I can believe what I believe about people's organizations with no consequence. Right. I can hold on to my version of truth with no consequence. But there and used to be they, consequence. Well, before. well, well, there can be consequence, but what I meant was, yeah. So with, yeah, with no consequence. Right. So, so, and then like by virtue of the fact that I'm on the phone with somebody, chances are they've seen a talk, something's resonated with them. Right. They wanted to talk with me. They so I'm like in a situation where I've constructed a world where there's like, there's, there's almost no downside to being assertive. Right. And, and, you know, it's like, it's like, we're, we're, we're busy as a company. And, and so don't get me wrong. Do I want to close every deal and, and acquire every client that calls hundred percent, but, but I also recognize that not everybody's going to believe what we believe. Right. And it's okay. Yeah. And I'm cool with that because there's enough people that do. Now, the, a lot of the people I believe that you're talking to, right. They're, they're operating inside a company with a power structure. And, and, and I will tell you, right. The last two jobs I had, I think I told you the story about where the lady basically gave me no work to do. Yeah. Right. So, so in that particular context, I think a big part of the reason why she didn't like me is because I was super opinionated and, you know, I had a strong point of view and I was fearless to articulate it. And if I didn't think something's working, I would tell her. And, and I don't think I did a good job of creating a ton of safety for her. And the consequences of that was I got marginalized and eventually got laid off. Um, the next job that I was at, um, that was incredibly formative to me. That's where I met Brian Sonnegaard. You know, he, he was the first guy that really formally introduced me to Agile in a meaningful way. And we did all this great work together. <clears throat> but, you know, a couple of reorgs later in my tenure there before I joined version one, I was the same guy, right? <clears throat> Loud, vocal, point of view, all these things got passed over per, for promotions, didn't get opportunities, right? Had I been more patient, I think it probably would have worked out, but um, ended up leaving and going to work for version one and doing something that I like to do. And so, and so I think the point that I'm saying is that if you choose to be a change agent inside of a company, mm -hmm. right? I think the game's more political. You have to have alliances. You have to have ground cover. You have to have the ability to produce results. You have to have, I mean, and- and then like, and and it's just more dangerous, I guess, is what it's because it's like a lot of companies, you know, they're, they're not great at listening to new ideas in this regard, you yeah. know, and you become, you become somebody that's stirring the pot and making noise and all these things. So if you are going to decide to do that in a company, probably like the same rules apply. You need to have deep empathy for the people that you're working around. You need to understand the real constraints. You need to have a really strong point of view that you're really confident will solve the problem. Um, you have to get really good at, at telling your story. You have to be incredibly patient, right? I mean, all these things, right? Operate within your uh, within your span of control, and then kind of try to grow your world. I mean, it's a longer game, yeah. Right? It's a longer game, and so and so. I think it's dicier having this conversation in a company, regardless of how well prepared you are.
Because, you know, like, so this, the second company that I was working for, they ended up being a longstanding client of ours. And, you know, and I, and, you know, there's a little bit of me in the back of my mind. that's like, you know, I would have done this for you as an employee making $105,000 a year at the time. Right. And now you have seven or eight of my team members and, you know, you're, you're paying me a pretty good day rate to, to come and help you. Right. And we could have done this, like we could have done this, but at the time, Right. I was in the company. Right. And you know, right. people didn't want to listen. And, you know, candidly, we had years to evolve the message and we had built some pretty strong alliances. And a lot of my people that I worked for back in the day were still there and, you know, helped bring us in and stuff. So it wasn't quite that cut and dry. But but the the net net of it was is that sometimes people hire consultants because because companies aren't good at listening to their own people. Yeah. You know, and so there's just risk. If you're going to be that person, there's a great um, quote um, by Machiavelli. I was actually just looking it up the other day and it talks about like, <laughs> beware of people that, you know, are you sitting around reading Machiavelli's? Well, because I'm putting together, you? I'm putting together a talk for, um, for a client that um, wants me to do a keynote um, at their internal conference on change. So I was looking okay. at change quotes and, and this was a quote that's been in my world for a long time, but it talks about like, beware of people who want to lead change because, you know, the people that stand to benefit from the changes are going to be weak, um, weak supporters because you haven't proven anything to them yet. Mm-hmm. And, and the people that stand to like lose ground because they're profiting from the old world. And this is a horrible quote. I'm not doing a great job of quoting it, but you get the gist, right? The people that are profiting from the current status quo are going to fight you. Yeah. So it's like you basically either have people fighting you or you have weak support. Right. And, and so, you know, then I think it maybe gets into some of the John Cotter stuff. You have to have a powerful guiding coalition. You have to have small wins and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, so it's like, um, it's just Daisy, right? It's just Daisy doing this from inside a company. Yeah. And, 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 and on your, like, so you just have to be really, really good. You have to develop your thinking. You have to develop your empathy. You have to develop your point of view. You have to get incredibly articulate at explaining things. You have to have a great track record. You have to build alliances. But like people aren't just going to, people just aren't wired. They've been doing things the way they've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years sometimes. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they're just not inclined to have somebody with this new idea that's maybe not as thought out, don't understand the implications, can't demonstrate empathy. They're not just going to roll over and just go, sure, I'll try something new. Just doesn't work that way typically. Yeah. And I think I just, just so that the people are listening, that doesn't happen overnight. You've got to go out and fumble the message and, and, and be bad in front of people and drop the ball and get laid off or get fired. And all that's got to happen. And you got to make your bones to get to that place where you have the confidence. Well, you know, and you know, another thing that I did um, at the encouragement of Brian, when I was working for him was, you know, that's when I started leading agile blog and just started writing and getting out and speaking and doing papers and, and I, and I can't, I, it blows me away. I don't write as much as I used to anymore, but like people who don't develop their ideas through writing, like, I just don't understand because like, it's like, if you want to get really, really clear on what you believe, you got to sit down and do the work to really think it through, you know, and, and doing written word and putting it up on a blog and getting public feedback or, you know, even if it's Facebook or Twitter or something like that. I mean, developing your thinking and developing your ability to, to make a coherent argument um, it, it's not something that you, you learn overnight. Like I, I literally think back to executives that I worked for in my thirties and I just need to go around and do an apology tour at how bad I was. <laughs> at communicating I did ideas. that. <clears throat> yeah. 
I like, did that to a guy. Executive. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, damn it. Yeah, this one guy was like my boss's boss's boss. And I was sitting in his office and he's like, okay, like explain to me why I should do this agile stuff. And like, I had like the worst answer ever. Yeah. You know? And he actually ended up hiring us. He left someplace. He ended up hiring us as a, as a consultancy at some point. Right. But it's like, it took me 20 years, maybe 15. Right. To get to the point where like, okay, I can articulate this value prop. Maybe it took me less than that. Cause I've been doing it pretty well for a while, but um, yeah, it just doesn't come easy. Right. And, and I, and I think you have to, and to some degree, I think you have to earn the right to be listened to. I think you have to have a track record. You know, I think, yeah, I think yeah. that, the, the writing thing. I think we should stop because the writing thing was brilliant. I didn't think I was going to get like a tangible thing. I could say to people like Mike has good advice for, for you people who don't have agency do this. And you just gave it. So I just so you end it right just, now. You this whole thread on our podcast together. And you didn't think I was going to give you a good answer. Well, no, wow. but when we started, wow. let me, let me, let me reframe it. When we got into the topic, it became clear to me that like that this was a problem that was quickly solved for you there was a mechanism in your head middle school or whatever it was like it's confident it's confidence and belief self-belief yeah. in your position yeah. but the writing thing is something that people who don't have that confidence can do to formalize their position you know i'll tell you one thing and this and this may be this may be a, a good segue and i want to give props to somebody because i got involved coming out of the agile 2006 conference in minneapolis um, I got involved with APLN. Um, I don't know if I don't know if, I don't think that organization exists anymore. Is ALN for a while? Again, I don't I don't know if it's a thing anymore. But um, I got involved um, with that group and met a guy named David Spann. And um, David, I was I was posting on like an internal message board or something like that, or again a Google group. It probably was probably was a Yahoo group or something at the time, right? Um, and so I, and so I was writing and communicating my ideas. And, and one of the cool things was, and this was like a really cool benefit of writing, is that when I was writing this, he get, he said something to me to the effect of, you know, that was a very well articulated point of view. You have a really strong voice in this community. And you need to keep getting your thinking out there. And to this awesome. day, yeah, to this day, I give David Span credit for helping me find my voice because I don't think it had somebody, because I respect David a lot to this day, we're friends. Um, his giving me like permission to speak was very empowering. But, and so that helped. But had I not, had Brian Sonnegard not encouraged me to start writing? Yeah. Like, like it was like the encouragement to write followed by, you know, validation of my ideas. And then the more I wrote, you know, people would put challenging things up on leading agile and challenge my thinking or whatever, but that was all fine. Right. It was just like, I just kept, kept sharing ideas and I found that my ideas were validated more than not. And, and so again, right. Just a lot of stuff in there, but yeah, I, I think if that's what you want the takeaway to be, I think that's as good as any man. It's like, it's just like develop your thinking and develop your ideas by writing and getting really clear and seeking feedback. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. This cool. was great. Thank you. We did three yeah. topics. It was more than 45 minutes, but it was still yeah. really good. Yeah. I think we're at like an hour five or something. Yeah. And, and typically you don't edit these out very much. So people might get this whole hour five. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Tim might want to cut it up, but we'll pretty, see. What happens. Pretty, pretty soon. We're <laughs> going to be like doing Joe Rogan style three and a half hour podcast. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> go pretty quick at the topic. No, yeah. this was great. I really appreciate yeah. you making time for this. So I'm going to put links for all the Elevate Agile stuff up there and some other podcasts and some other resources for folks to check out. But Mike, thank you very much for doing this. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Dave. See you, man. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye.